It's a mean age. But it is going to be a beautiful future as long as we don't f*** it up. I'm Brian McWilliams, and this is Mean Age Daydream, where I bring you unfiltered comedy, criticism, philosophy, and politics with a Mean Age Daydream. Oh, yeah, we are here. Welcome to Main Age Daydream, anybody and everybody, and uh, and your dogs and cats, hopefully. We'll get a, really get our listener numbers boosted. I am here with one cool cat in her own right, and that is comedian, documentarian, and sweetheart to the nation, Lila Hart. What's up, Lila? Hello, and thank you so much, Brian, for having me on your show. It's so good to see you again. I know. It was awesome. So, backstory here, Lila and I met at uh, an event put on by the wonderful Adam Choit, which is at the Sanctuary Comedy Show up at uh, the only Black Elks Lodge that is in America. Yes, I don't know if you knew that when we performed there, but... Yeah, Lila was on the show with me. It was awesome. I hosted, and she was one of the uh, the fantastic comedians that performed that night, along with Chrissy Mayer. And uh, I'm trying to remember the other two, but I remember you and Chrissy because I talked to you the longest. But yeah, it's awesome seeing you again. And so you did such a great job hosting that night. It was a fun show. It was indeed a fun show. And, you know, it's funny because once I, I, I got into chatting with you and then obviously following you on Twitter and interacting a little bit more there, and... You know, obviously seeing your stand-up is fantastic. <laughs> really, really funny stuff. And I, what I love is a lot of, similar to my kind of comedy, I like the bait-and-switch approach, you know, so often leading people down the wrong path and then hitting them with a, a little surprise at the end. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about your story. You know, how did you get into comedy? How did you become who you are? Where did you land politically? And I'm sure it's a fascinating tale. Yeah, so um, to give you a little background, I grew up in Washington State. I went to Washington State University. My degree is in broadcast production with a minor in political science. So my dream for the longest time was to be a news anchor. But because uh, behind a news desk, like sitting like this, just as we are here, no one would know that I was four foot six and that I was born with a congenital birth defect called spina bifida. So um Growing up with spina bifida, and for those of in your audience that don't know what it is, it's a congenital birth defect. It's like being born with a spinal cord injury. No two cases of spina bifida are alike. That's why I call it, they, they call it the snowflake disability. And uh, I was such a nice way of saying it. Yeah, the snowflake <laughs> disability. Um, I was born at, in Honolulu, Hawaii, at the medical, uh, the, the Tripler Medical Hospital, it's a military hospital. And uh, when I was born, doctors told my parents that I would never be able to walk. I would have learning disabilities and I would have like a whole plethora of issues because of how severe um, my type of spina bifida is. There's three types of it. I have the most severe case, which is called um, spina bifida myelomeningocele. And so uh, immediately after I was born, I had to have surgery. I've had 12 major operations on my back and my leg. Um, Fortunately, I am able to walk, which truly is a miracle. And I'm so grateful for that every day. But I do kind of walk with a little bit of a limp. I call it my like gangster lane, you know? Yeah, you crip walk. It looks you, you saw my pimp walk. It was cool. Oh, it was so hot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, yeah, you know, I really accredit my parents because uh, 
you know, my mom and dad really never treated me like I was disabled. Um, you know, I have a, a they were abusive, like any good parents <laughs> yeah. typically locked you in the basement, just like mine did. They treated me like just like any other kid. You know, my mom is from the Philippines. My dad is from Louisiana. They've actually been um, married for almost 32 years. In October, it'll be 32 years. And uh, my dad was in the military. So, you know, like I said, my parents never treated me differently. And my dad, you know, he tells a story about um, I was about to have like a really major operation on my back before my like first birthday. And it was going to be like a 12 hour surgery. Mm -hmm. And he went and he visited the surgeon because he was nervous about it. He wanted to meet the surgeon who was going to do this operation. And he saw on the surgeons in in his office, there was a sign that said, uh, winning only matters in war and in surgery. And when he saw that, he was like, okay, it it gave him like a sense of peace that like, okay, that this was the right guy to do the surgery. And I feel very fortunate. Like I said, like a lot of things happen where I had an excellent surgeon, good parents, and, you know, by the grace of God, I am able to walk. So um, in high school and college, you know, I, like I said, I was very, um, I was pretty insecure about my disability. You know, I didn't talk about it. I really tried to hide it. Um, And when I was in college, you know, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be like everybody else. And I remember I rushed to be in a sorority because that's what you do in college and you want to be part of the fraternity system. Oh, yeah. I was a frat boy. Yeah. So I rushed to be in a sorority. And I remember um, this at Washington State University. You know, you it's like a, a week long process. And at the end of the week, you choose a house and the house chooses you, et cetera. Well, at the end of the week, none of the houses wanted me. And I found out later it was because I had a feeling it was because of my disability. But you have to understand, this is like, you know, 12 years ago, 10 years ago now, um, before people were like so woke about Mm -hmm. inclusion. And I remember my senior year of college, this girl comes up to me and she's pretty drunk and she's tearful. And she's like, I have to let you know something that um, none of the houses wanted you because we didn't want to be known as a house with a crippled girl, you Mm -hmm. know, so um, that was very painful for me. And I moved to Los Angeles right after graduating. And, you know, I would, um, I wanted to get into acting, all that. And I would send in my headshot and I'd always get the call back. But then when I came in and being for six, you know, I, I felt like my disability, I was getting discriminated against. Well, so- they don't, they don't like to hire people that are taller than Tom Cruise. Usually that's a law. <laughs> so you got to remember that in acting. <laughs> So um, I had this epiphany uh, in 2016. It just came to me. It was actually my sister's birthday, February 10th, which is my comedy anniversary. And the epiphany was like, oh, my gosh, Lila, if you become a stand-up comedian, they will write parts in for you. And if you become a comic, you know, you can write your own story and you can talk about these things. So I went to my first open mic, which was at Flappers in Burbank. Oh, nice. Uh, I remember I wore this gold dress. I got there two hours early and um, I performed, you know, for the first time on stage. And I remember getting off the stage. It was like that instant, like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And it was so empowering, Brian, to like say for the first time out loud, like, I have spina bifida. And to talk about, you know, to say these words like spina bifida, midget, cripple, Mm. all of these words that truly used to hurt me, you know, like used to make me cry. And um, two weeks before I became a comedian, I went to the Laugh Factory and I watched Adam Ray perform stand up. And I remember Adam Ray 
did this comedy bit about his midget friend, Brad Williams. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there, seething kind of like, oh my God, everyone in this audience is going to think the midget he's talking about in his bit (laughs) is me. Everyone is going to think I'm the midget that was fucking the stripper in the closet. (laughs) Oh my God. And I'm like, you know, kind of having this internal anxiety. After the show, the friend that was with me was like, Lila, you should tell Adam that that word midget was like, you know, you shouldn't be using that in a standup. And I remember telling my friend, no, I need to figure out what the hell is going on with me that 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 word triggered me so much to feel so uncomfortable. And then two weeks later, I became a standup comedian, you know, <laughs> so um, standup truly has healed me in so many ways. And it's it's given me everything in life that I, I could have dreamed of, you know, if my, if I I'm 31 now, but if I could like, if my 18 year old self could see the 31 version, 31 year old version of me, she would be so proud, so excited. And, you know, it's pretty incredible. Well, let me ask you this. Cause a lot of times you'll find the people that will get offended for others, right? It's always that way. Yeah. People get offended on behalf of other people about phrases or terms or jokes that are used. And, very often you'll see people that are actually, let's say, affected by what the person is talking about, have been through it because it is a cathartic thing, you know, laughing about something. And to your point about an issue that's affected you, being able to laugh through it, get over it, address it, helps people heal, helps people come to grips with it. Have you had people that have a, you know, a similar condition uh, have come up to you and say, you know, hearing you joke about this has actually helped me along in yeah, you know, dealing with this? Absolutely. You know, I, I feel like that's part of the reason why I do it. I remember, um, Here's what's interesting. I didn't meet anybody with spina bifida until I was 21 years old. Okay. I like, I didn't even, and the first time I met other people with spina bifida was at at an event in Santa Monica called Life Rolls On. And um, it's an event for disabled people to come on the beach. They put mats on the beach and anybody in a wheelchair can go out there and then they take people surfing. And I remember going and the first time I met this little girl, um, her name was S. Susie. She was uh, seven years old and she had spina bifida. And I remember she was like, Lila, come play in the, like, come play in the water with me, you know? And she was crawling in the sand because she couldn't walk. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like, wow, this little girl is just so cute and so full of life. And here I am feeling insecure about myself, my legs and, you know, how I look. And it was at that moment, I remember I I got to my car and I called my mom and I was bawling and I was like, I am no longer going to be insecure about the clothes that I wear. I'm going to wear skirts. I'm going to show off my legs. I I used to hate Mm -hmm. my legs because they're very thin and skinny. And um, I, I hated them so much, you know? So a part of why I do stand up and I speak out about these things is for people who are younger and older than me, who, who I know have felt insecure about certain things. Like I remember um, just this last weekend, I went to uh, the FNT meetup and uh, me and Chrissy and Keanu had a show at the space in Las Vegas. And I met this awesome guy who's 34 years old and he had spi- has spina bifida like me. And I was the first person he's ever met who had spina bifida. <laughs> and he came and watched the show, you know? And, you know, I just think about all the times when I was younger, like how cool it would have been to, if I would have known that there was a girl out there who was living her dreams and married and, you know, having a cool life, it would have helped me be less like scared about the future, you know? 
But I've also, Ryan, I've had incidences where, you know, people have been upset about words that I've used on stage. Um, I remember in 2016, I performed on a show called Little Women LA. Have you heard of it? No, I don't think I have. So it's kind of like the, it's like Real Housewives, but it's like Little Women. Okay, yeah. <laughs> kind of like that. And uh, I remember these ladies, I, I looked up to them because I watched them when I was in college. Uh, and I just thought it was so cool, you know. And uh, I got invited to perform stand-up for these little women. They have uh, different types of dwarfism. And they came to my comedy show. And I remember right before I went on stage, I had this thought in my mind. It was like, Lila, are you going to, like, do your midget jokes? Like, are you going to do that? Like, there's a bunch of little people in the audience. Are you going to do it? And I remember thinking, hell yeah, I'm going to do it. Because <laughs> these jokes are fucking funny. Right. And number two, I believe in the joke. Here's it. I think the difference between a, like an offensive joke and like truly comedy is if you have a joke about people in wheelchairs, if you have a joke about disabled people, you should be able to do that joke in a room full of people who look like that. Yep. If, if you can do it in a room full of people who look like that, then that's a good fucking joke. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. You believe in it. So um, I remember I did my stand up for them. And afterwards, the cameras are rolling. I come outside to meet the ladies. I'm so excited. I'm it's my first year stand up. It's so funny. I come out there and I'm like, hey, ladies. And they're like, we need to talk to you, Lila. Oh, God. Uh, I'm like, oh, no. What is happening? And they're like, you know, we really don't like the fact that you use the M word in mm. your stand up, midget, the M word, right? And they proceeded. This clip, it's cut down to like a one minute clip. You can find it on YouTube. Um, just type Lila Hart, Little Women. You'll see it. It's cut down to a one minute clip, but this was actually an hour and a half conversation. Oh, they're just berating you about the one word that you used in a joke. And do do they not know what I always take this to? They invite you to do the show based upon who you are. They know your material. They should know your material. Do they review nothing when they invited you on? And then you expect that you're expected to be editing yourself for their audience? Well, you know, here's the thing. I'm really glad that we did have that conversation on national television. I think it was a very important conversation to have. I'm also really proud of myself as a stand-up comedian that I did not apologize for the joke. And Mm -hmm. I didn't take the joke back. I also am glad that I heard them out. I listened to what they had to say. But I also told them that, hey, you know what? I use this word not because um, I'm trying to hurt your feelings. It's because this is a word that used to hurt my feelings. And I can also understand where they were coming from, Brian, because like I said, you know, just, you know, months prior to that, I was in their position, right? Mm -hmm. I was in their position listening to Adam Ray use the word being like, oh, my gosh. But the difference was I was like, I'm going to figure out what's going on with me. And then I did something about it. I didn't go up to Adam and be like, you can't use that word. And how dare you use that word because it hurts me, blah, blah, blah. But it's like there's something internal going on. And I feel like as stand-up comedians, what we're supposed to do is to be able to have these conversations and to poke fun at things. And that at the end of the day, this, this is comedy. And, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that I can call myself the baddest midget bitch and you know, I can make fun of these words. And the the thing that's so amazing about it, too, it's like the more I've used the word in my standup, it's like the less that word has been used to, like, attack me or make me mm-hmm. feel bad. You right. know, I remember there was a time in college 
where I was walking down the street with my girlfriends. We were just going to a party. Some guy yelled from across the street, oh, my God, there's a midget over there. And my friends were, like, you know, so upset. And everybody was, like, really, you know, upset about it. And it's funny to me because it's, like, the word, right? There's The, the problem with the word, it's not that the word midget, it's bad. It's the way that it's like used. You're not saying, if someone was like, oh my God, she's a fine ass midget. I'd be like, okay, I'll take it. But it's all, it's, it always was like, oh, midget, gross, you know? And so for me to take the power back and be like, yeah, I'm going to call myself the baddest midget bitch and, you know, take back the word, it made me feel powerful. And, you know, I think that's the beauty of standup is that we can figure out some of these traumas that have happened to us and, talk about it on stage and it's like so healing for yourself as well as the people who get to hear it. Yeah. And I think it gives people, look, if you're in the audience, as you said, there's jokes that transcend or should be able to transcend most people's offensive sensibilities. And I was curious to see, you just did a recent tour and we'll talk a little bit about your, your, your politics and your political outlook too, because I know, you know, obviously you, you share a lot of my sympathies for Liberty Mm -hmm. and freedom and free speech, but I'm curious to see, you know, how that tour went and and a lot of the responses you've had with your comedy touring around, but also like you're saying, being able to take a word back and also as a, as an audience member, if you're seeing somebody use a word so aggressively that would describe themselves to be offended by that is basically robbing them of their identity, right? It's saying that uh, my, you know, my, whatever I might be into, whatever causes I might support, my opinion is more important than your opinion as a person who's actually afflicted with it. And that always really pissed me off because like you're saying, if it's your identity, if it's your story, you should be able to tell that however the fuck you want to tell it. Exactly. And, you know, I think we're, we're living in very interesting times. Like I said, there was, there was a time in my life where I wanted to hide my disability, right? Like my my 18 year old self would have loved this whole Zoom situation mm-hmm. here. I would have never had to tell anybody anything about my disability, you had no idea. And then it's funny how like, you know, now people like, I remember just like three years after I graduated, there was a girl who had Down syndrome who was accepted into a sorority and it made like the front of like, good morning America. And I was thinking like, wow, just three years ago, I was too crippled. Yeah. To be in a story. So in some ways, like, you know, I think it's it's really great that the world has been more accepting. But also it's very interesting to me how now some people want to overly identify with disability or just, you know, like for me, it's like my disability is a part of my story, but it's not everything. You yeah. Know? I mean, well, let me ask this. How much does it piss you off when you see stories now? And this is a trend of people that are making themselves disabled. Because that's how they feel inside. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the trans movement, except with disabilities. Have you seen this as people taking their eyes out, having limbs removed? I mean, it it blows my mind. I, I mean, it is it is very uh, baffling to me. It's yeah, it is crazy. It truly it's is. Like, <laughs> it pe- it's like peak privilege. It's peak privilege when you have to seek out to become a uh, disability or make life more difficult on yourself, I guess. But let's exactly. talk a little bit then about your politics, how you got into where you are politically and how that has impacted your comedy, impacted the way in which you interact with the world. Because as we know, comedy is still very much a leftist world. It's, you know, difficult to interact with other comics at time. If you don't share that ultra leftist worldview, it could be difficult to get bookings, I would presume in certain areas, unless you're really huge. So tell me a little bit about that, how you got there and how it's impacted things. Well, you know, it's, uh, I think that, um, 
the what happened to me in 2016 about you know defending myself for for the M word gave me gave me a little taste of like what was to come. Mm-hmm. So that's why like I'm really proud of the fact that I stood my ground. I heard people out. I didn't insult them, and I also but I didn't apologize, and I didn't um, you know change what I was going to do with stand up. And I I evolved in my own ways. But so um, I'll say this in in 2020. Uh, when everything happened in the world and everything changed so much, you know, comedy really took a standstill. And, you know, we were doing the Zoom comedy shows. We were, uh, and that's really when a lot changed for me because I did one Zoom comedy show, Brian. Okay. I did one Zoom comedy show. And um, I remember it was, ju- it was just your current husband and he was masturbating the entire time. <laughs> Unbelievably awkward, but ended well. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did one show and I, I remember like, it was so awful. Like I just shut my computer in the middle of my living room and I like didn't even leave. And I, and I, I started crying and I'm like, Oh my God, this is so awful. Uh, yeah. But you know, when, cause I was going out, you know, four nights, like four nights a week performing. And then every day at least doing a little bit of, um, and doing a little bit of open mics and such, but, uh, hold on one second really quick. Sure. My cat is screaming. I just need to <laughs> You're going to call your cat, just call the cat on the cat phone. I can hear him. Yeah. Is the yeah. cat in heat? Yes. <laughs> oh God, please tell me it's not. I remember we had a, we had cats growing up. As you do this, I'll tell the story. We had cats growing up. Uh, one idiot cat and one nice cat. The idiot cat named Cinders was a golf course cat who, of course, we got got fixed. But she was such an imbecile that she would walk outside. She tried to escape to go back outside and live in the wilderness. And then just go outside and hide under a bush for, you know, several hours. And then just eventually she'd get tired and cold and come back inside. But she never was really effective. The only smart thing this cat ever did, she got up on a windowsill, kind of like a sill between two rooms, going down into the lower uh, living room area. And I had a little Pomeranian dog and a deck of cards sitting on this sill. And the cat, just with her fatness, must have knocked a card off. It spins to the floor, hits the dog in the head on the way down. Cat figured it out. Starts sliding cards off the sill, hitting the dog in the head time and time again. Hilarious. Hilarious. But oh otherwise, she was a big, fat, worthless idiot of a cat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, she's she's in heat right now. Her name is Biscuit. She's are you going to breed her? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so we got two of our other cats fixed. So she's the yeah. third one. And I don't know. I mean, she's just really loud right now. We probably will get her fixed. Who knows what will happen? <laughs> Anyway, is she, just, is she just fucking cat humping your couch right now? Is that what's going on? Just grinding like, down. She wants on it? a lot of affection. It's very sweet, but it's a little distracting. So. Yeah, all right, that's all good. Sorry nobody, about that. Nobody here is concerned about cat cat noises. They listen to me catterwall all the time on this show. My camera oh, just my. went out of focus. There we go. It's okay. So, um, to get back to your story, uh, to my story. So, 2020 happened. The world shifts and change, and I felt like there there was like a big split that you know, took place. And I wouldn't have really considered myself political before 2020. I feel like the world changed so much that I was kind of forced to become mm-hmm. political in some ways. But um, basically, I had a big show August 29th of 2021 at the Ford Amphitheater in Los Angeles. And um, there was 10 performers. I was the only unvaccinated performer. It was the only time that I took a COVID test because I really wanted to do the show. And, you know, there was a lot that I was already, 
a lot of things where I was like, there's there's some sketchy stuff going on here. But anyways, I, I did the show. I also had a medical exemption because of my spina bifida and because I also have like a, a rare blood clotting disorder. So I, mm. I can't get these vaccinations anyways. But also, frankly, I just didn't want the damn thing. So I had this amazing show. Um, it was freaking fantastic. The best night of my life, truly. One of the best nights. Um, best night of my life ca- career-wise. And I, <laughs> I remember three days later, I went to the comedy store on Sunset. You know, I had a negative COVID test, my medical exemption paperwork, and I'm just coming off of this high of, you know, having a standing ovation at this amazing, you know, venue. And also I was in the LA Times. It was like written about, it was like a oh, cool thing. fantastic. Yeah. So I, I get there and um, they tell me, okay, Lila, do you have your vaccine card? And I was like, uh, no, I have, but I have all this like negative COVID test from three days ago, medical, you know, all these paperwork. Like, I've got my papers yeah. in my bag. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, we need to call a manager. And I couldn't believe this. So I'm like, I'm standing outside the comedy store and this is the club I used to frequent like every night, hang out, like mm-hmm. hang out in the back, you know, go wherever I want to, no big deal to now I'm being asked to stand stand by, you know, and, and it's crazy to me because I'm like, I thought this vaccine BS was supposed to protect and help people like me, not, right. you know, make me now stand outside. So I'm standing there for about 30 minutes. The manager comes and he's like, looks at my paperwork and he tells me, Lila, we can scan these documents. We can scan these documents. And then in three days, you can come back to the comedy. Oh, three fucking days. What the hell? So I was like, um, I'm not going to do that. And as I'm leaving or as I was about to leave, the manager leaves. Um, the bouncer says to me, he was like, Lila, why don't you just show me a fake vaccine card? If you would have shown me a fake vaccine card, girl, I would have just let you in. Right. Then this is where it really pissed me off. So it's like, okay, so you know all of this is bullshit to begin with. You could have, and the fact that he tells me, you should, you could have shown me a fake vaccine card and let me in. It's like, well, then why don't you just act like you saw a fake That's vaccine card? That's what I was going to say. Why? Yeah, yeah exactly. Paperwork, but you decided you needed to call a manager to get right. me in there. right. So it doesn't even make any damn sense. So at this point, I'm like, okay, I need to document this. I make a video and I talk about it and I call it out. And I was like, I guess I can't come into the comedy club. Like, this is fucking insane. And two weeks later, my husband and I decided to move to Texas. Okay. Mm. But the first person who reached out to me after she had seen this video was Chrissy Mayer. And I have to give a big shout out to Chrissy because, you know, Chrissy has taken me on tour with her all year. She's headlining and I've been featuring for her this past year. And she is really amazing. She had me on her podcast to talk about this. And what was really crazy is like about three or four months before this incident, maybe two months um, I saw this Twitter post that Chrissy had posted. This is before I, you know, I had met her and known her. And it was a post where she posted on Twitter saying that she would not perform at any venue that mandated or required the vaccines. She would not do that. And I remember mm-hmm. this post went pretty viral. And I remember thinking like, wow, this woman is like so brave. And I love that she's speaking out against this because at this time in 2020, I, you know, I had these thoughts, but I like, I was really and frank with my thoughts. I couldn't like publicly speak out about them. I mean, I would wear a mask when I was around certain friends that I know who would be triggered about Mm. things. But when I was out with my husband, I would go to the grocery store and go everywhere without my mask. But when I was with certain friends who I know felt a certain way, I would just wear it. So I wasn't wearing it for myself or my protection. I was literally wearing it to make these people feel comfortable. And um, I remember another breaking point I had, but right before the incident at the comedy store was, I was at a, uh, I was at a Starbucks 
And I remember going into Starbucks with my friend who I wore, I wore the mask around her to make her feel comfortable. I remember I get in there and I'm just like, I cannot put up with this charade anymore. I can't do it. So I tip <laughs> off the mask. I order my damn drink. I'm waiting to get my drink. To, you know, I'm waiting to get my drink and I'm feeling like good. I'm like, okay, I'm making a statement. I'm not wearing the mask. No one's bothering me. It's cool. The lady making the drink, all of a sudden she goes, um, excuse me, ma'am, you need to put on your mask. And I was like, can you just make the drink and then I'll get out of here. And she's like, no. no you need to put on your mask. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. And she's like, you need to put on your mask. And I'm like, okay, would you rather I get my drink back? Or, or like, I get my money back and then you don't have to make the drink. And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so I'm just going to be in here longer maskless. Right, without the mask. <laughs> but whatever, whatever you guys freaking say. So then um, I go to the cash register. I'm getting my money back. A guy walks in. This man was like six foot tall. Walks in. He has no mask on. He's ordering his drink. They're not giving him any flack. I'm like, dude, are you just picking and choosing who you're going to pick on? Because he is not wearing a mask. And you are letting him order the drink. And then she looks at this man and looks at me and looks back at this man. And she's like, "Um, sir, can you put your mask on? And this fucking guy puts on his mask. And I was like, this is when I just lose it. And I break out into the speech. And I'm like, how long are we going to do this? These masks don't work. This is BS. Are you guys seeing what's happening here? There's a lady in the back with her child. She's like cheering me on. She's yeah, good. Your Starbucks brave part. I love it. But then this guy with two masks, two like double masks. I mean, God, this is like a movie. <laughs> Anthony double Fauci masks. turns out he was there the whole time. <laughs> he walks up to me, Brian, and he gets in my face like this. And he's like, oh. you are the reason that people are dying. It's because of you, people like you, who will not just put on a damn mask. And I was like, whoa, this is just insane. So- uh, it's just it's just amazing to see still people wearing the mask and, and people not that guy I guarantee still isn't admitted that masks don't work that they never have worked they never will every study shows but anyway keep going so you know again so at, at this time I'm like starting to speak out about it but I'm still feeling like really like Anne Frank with my thoughts and I'm not but then this incident happens at the comedy store and I call everybody out and Chrissy Mayer is the first person to have me on her podcast so we talk about it on her podcast and I remember it, it was pretty emotional for me. And then two weeks later, me and my husband move out to Texas and Chrissy was headlining at Hyenas and she messages me and she's like, hey, Lila, do you want to come do a spot, you know, open for me? And I was like, absolutely. I get out to the Hyenas Comedy Club. I perform on the set. After the show, there was a bunch of people there from The Blaze. It was Eliza Schaefer, Sydney Watson, John Doyle, and my friend Brittany Venti, who's now my friend. Um, they were all in the audience. So Elijah Schaefer comes up to me and he was like, Lila, oh my God, you're so funny. Love to fly you out and have you come on my show. I have a new show called You Are Here. And I was like, you don't even have to fly me out. I live here now. And he was like, fantastic. <laughs> so a couple weeks later, I was his fourth guest on the show on You Are Here. And here's what's funny, Brian. They invite me on this show, right? To be like, ha ha, funny comedian. I get on this show. And I am a cry median, okay? <laughs> I am just crying. I'm telling my story. I'm burying my soul. I, I, I essentially feel like I'm coming out with the fact that right, I don't yeah. that vaccines are where I believe that they're killing people. I think the masks are horrible. I think all of this is a psyop. 
and I'm coming out, right? I lose 6,000 followers that day. Damn, wow. 6, well, at least you know they were watching. That's yeah. the good news. And <laughs> then I get a bunch of messages from people being like, oh, my God, Lila, I cannot believe that you would move to Texas. How could you do this? Like, you know, just basically telling me how horrible I was. And a lot, some of these people were other disabled people who had looked up to me for years. You know, now mm. I think that's the one that, like, really hurt me the most was, like, some of the disabled people who had looked up to me as a mentor being like now like, oh, you're horrible and you want us all to die. Did they, I mean, did they actually explicitly say, did they say, you know, I looked up to you as a fellow disabled person? Did they specifically say oh, yeah. it to try to make you feel, ex- see, that's so shitty. I mean, honestly, yeah, I, I that, that's extra you. shitty because they're, now they're using, you know, your, your shared, I guess, past, your shared experience to try to make you feel bad for something that you, you're standing up and believing it. That's just a scumbag move on their part. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really awful, but here's, here's the crazy, awesome thing that happened. So after the episode, you know, Elijah's like, oh, this is so great. And he's like, um, tomorrow we're going to have Alex Jones on as the fifth guest. He's going to be sitting in that chair. And I was like, no freaking way. And he's like, uh, yeah. So if you and your husband want to come back, um, and watch the show, you know, you're more than welcome to, which is so cool of Elijah to do that. And I remember I got home and I told my husband, oh, also to give you a little backstory, um, me and my husband were actually, the house that we had originally bought, the sellers lied on the seller's disclosure. So we had to pull out, we had oh. to live in a Motel 6 for seven weeks while we were desperately <laughs> looking for a home in Texas. So I get back to the Motel 6 after this after this um, interview, and I tell my husband, I was like, we're going to meet Alex Jones tomorrow. And he's like, no way, you know? And it's so funny because watching Alex Jones um, during a lot of 2020 is like really what uh, drove us to move to Texas. And so the fact that we're here for two weeks and now we're about to meet this guy, like what? So and then, of course, you realize Alex Jones been in the Motel 6 room next to you because he was sued for... <laughs> $80 billion. Yeah. He's like, this is all I can afford. <laughs> so we, um, we go to the show and Alex is there. And then afterwards, uh, Alex had like invites everybody to dinner and he bought everybody dinner at this oh, like, awesome. super nice steakhouse. And so it, it kind of like, you know, it gave me and my husband, like a lot of hope and a lot of strength. Like, okay, we're on the, we're on the right path. We just got to keep moving forward and doing things. So during a 2021, um, and going into 2022, I was uh, doing shows with Chrissy. Anytime she would come into town, she would have me like feature open for her, which was so amazing. And I started doing some stream shows with her. But it was really July 4th of 2022 when my husband and I released American History of Voter Fraud, mm-hmm. which is what kicked like totally got my comedy career back into motion because you have to understand like it's I almost felt like because of what had happened at the comedy store and because of how I spoke out against everything that I had a lot of people a lot of connections that I made in Hollywood kind of like disown me like shun me not talk to me again and I had to watch like you know that show that I did at the Ford Amphitheater I had to watch like all the other people all the other vac- all the vaccinated people that performed, they went on to, you know, open for Joe Coy, go on to walk the red carpet, do net stuff on Netflix, and I'm in a Motel Six in Texas. You know, right. <laughs> like yeah. so it it was uh it was really interesting. And 
I'm so proud and grateful for my husband because, you know, it was really him that he is the sole reason, really the researching, the, the writing, like I was his muse, you know what I mean? Like he saw how much had been taken away from me because of the pandemic and us making the movie American History of Voter Fraud is what kickstarted everything. You know, we um, we made the movie and I remember I had a 4th of July party at my house to show the movie. It was like a movie um, screening. And my friends were like, Lila, you're not putting this on YouTube, are you? And I'm like, I absolutely am putting this on YouTube. <laughs> Everybody thought I was crazy. They're like, it's going to get taken down immediately. Um, well, guess what? It's still up. It's got like almost 20,000 views. It's still up on YouTube. Put the movie up. Um, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, the only other like voter fraud filmmaker at the time, I ended up getting on his show, got interviewed on his show. His daughter, Danielle, also interviewed me on her show. My husband and I went to CPAC. I mean... It was just really amazing how many doors that this had opened because we were brave enough to speak about the truth. Yeah. Well, let me ask you now. So now where we're at, right? We're out of COVID. As I said, you know, the, all the studies have come out showing that the masking did nothing, that the vaccines have did, you know, arguably nothing, you know, maybe some effect in older people. And now we're seeing all of these reports come out about the side effects and everything else. So where we're at, are you finding that, as you're doing more comedy now, are more of the normies, more of the vaxies open to having you back? I mean, have you gotten any contact from any of the old L.A. places saying, you know what, sorry, come on back, you know, let bygones be bygones? Or is it still very much separation as far as? I feel like people want to act like that whole era of not letting people perform because they weren't vaccinated. They want to act like that didn't happen. You know, and what makes me even more sick, Brian, is that a lot of these comedians did not take the vaccine, but they promoted the vaccine passports and went along with that. And that's why we're in the position that we're in. You know, I'm really disappointed in that fact. And, you know, and then, you know, comedy is a very doggy dog world. So it's like, do they did they really care that Lila Hart couldn't perform? (laughs) Fuck no. They're like, that's great. More stage time for me, you know? And so what what happened is I feel like a lot of people have like, you know, moved up in comedy because there was a lot of people who could not perform, could not, you know, do certain things. And, you know, even in Hollywood, you think about certain TV shows. It's like, oh, that's so cool. You got that Netflix role. But like everybody had to be vaccinated to audition. Everybody had to be vaccinated to be in any vicinity of that area. It's like, okay, what the hell? So I'm kind of in the, um, no, I'm totally in this place now where I feel like I can't be canceled. You know, I I went through like the dark night of the soul. I feel like a phoenix that rose through the ashes. I went through all of this stuff and it's like, I'm just paving my own way. And that's why, you know, again, I'm so grateful for Christy Mary. She's been killing it, headlining all over the country. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that she has allowed me to feature for her and go on tour with her. And it's been so much fun. And, you know, we don't have agents or managers, but I'm paving my own way, you know, and that's, uh, we want to, like, it's like when you're truly speaking like the truth, when you're speaking the truth, it's going to be a longer road, but also you have your integrity and you're not, you know, injecting yourself with death poison. So, yeah. Well, what is next then? I mean, you guys have made, so I know you've, there's four 
documentaries that are on your website, which yeah. is, I think just lilahart.com. Yes, lilahart.com forward slash documentary. And there's four on there. So it looks like, you know, first you're starting off making stuff focusing on comedy. I like two hours of dick. That is exactly what uh, I made a similar <laughs> documentary called Two Minutes of Dick. And I show it to my wife. But Aww. what's what's next for you guys? I mean, are you focused, you and your husband, who's Eric Abenati? Did I say that right? Abenati. Uh, Yes. Uh, also a stand-up comedian, oddly yes, enough, which right. must be interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Like My wife gets sick of me joking with her, so I can't imagine your home life if you get sick of each other joking all the time. But, you know, where do you want to go? Do you want to do focus on comedy more? Do you do you want to go back to the documentaries now that you've you experienced it, had success with it? You know, where is your passion leading you now? Um, I feel like they really go hand in hand. You know, it's like making the documentaries has uh, it's been what's been able to get me back on stage. And our next film is The Trial of Anthony Fauci. And that uh-huh. will be coming out July 4th, 2023. So in just a oh. couple short months here, it's it'll be coming out. Um, nice. Yeah. So I'll have, to, I'll have to have you back on if you're game to uh, to chat about that. And maybe we'll do a little little more uh, slinging jokes about some current event stuff, too, when we're talking about Yeah, it. and if you ever want to have my husband on, too, he can really yeah. go into a lot of depth into all the facts of the film and stuff like that. He's incredible. And, you know, so it, it is funny that we are both stand-up comedians. We host an open mic together once a week. Oh, that's awesome. Texas. It's really fun. But I truly am the comedian I am today because of him. You know, I don't think I would be as strong of a comedian and um, as a writer if it wasn't for my husband. You know, he really, he is my, um, he's my best friend. But also, like, when it comes to stand-up, he's my biggest critic, but in a good way. Because to me, you know, it's great when people are like, oh, that was so awesome. But my husband could be like, oh, you missed that tag there. Yeah. See, this is where you stumbled, you know, because he just knows me so intimately and um, knows my story so well. So he's really I'm just so grateful for him. It's a lot of fun. See, what you should then say to people as you go, I may have spina bifida, but I also have a spina best friend. And that's your <laughs> husband. You don't have to laugh at that. It was such a bad joke, but I feel like I had to say it regardless. Ryan, you're so awesome. I'm so glad that we got to meet and hang out and I got to see you do your set. And you did, you really did such a great job hosting. And you also brought me up so well. You got my credit perfect. Yes. My yes. husband literally commented on that when because I, I filmed everything. And he was like, that guy brought you up like one of the best to bring you up because a lot of times people like stumble on it or the mess up and he was like you did it perfectly uh, well you know once in a while get them right but yeah no it's awesome meeting you too and i i hope you know for me i i stopped doing as much stand-up basically when i had my two kids well, it was covid and two kids has basically, yeah. basically eliminated me from doing most stand-up but i'm trying to get back into it now especially as my kids round out get a little bit older and don't take as much attendance, but uh, yeah, hopefully it'd be great to do another show with you sometime. I mean, yeah. how often do you come back to Los Angeles? Cause I also have been talking with, you know, Robbie, the fire Bernstein and some other comics about trying to do a little bit more up here as well. And uh, be great to do another show with you. Um, I don't know when I will be back. Hopefully soon, maybe in the next couple months, I'll be back there, but I will let you know. And I would love to do more stand up with you as well. Please keep doing stand up. You're very funny. You're very likable. You have great charisma on stage. So it's something that you should definitely keep doing. Never stop. 
Sounds good to me. Well, Lila, we're going to wrap this up. As I said, tragically, usually I'd go, I'd love to go longer, but I, I had these bastards at work change a call. I got to jump on. So where can everybody find you? As I said, lilahart.com. Where else should they find you, seek you out, uh, you know, upcoming gigs you want to promote? Yeah. So lilahart.com is my website. Lilahart.com slash documentary is where you can watch the films. Um, these films are absolutely for free, but if you want to contribute in any way, you can go to lilahart.com slash donate. Check out my husband, Eric Avenante. He is the best. You can find us both on Twitter at Eric Avenante is his Twitter. And mine is at love Lila heart. My next show will be at the Vulcan in Austin, May 26. I will be hosting for Alex Stein. Oh, so- nice. We're going to have a fun time. But yeah. And Brian, if you ever come out to Dallas, hit me up. Get you on the I will. Out here. Without <laughs> a doubt, I will uh, I will have to get out there. I've never been. As a proud Eagles fan, I try not to set st- set foot in Dallas. But as, uh, yeah, I mean, I got to get out to Texas. I've never really spent that much time there. I've got friends there. So yeah, it'd be great. We'll you see. I'll keep you posted. Yeah. And thank you again for joining us. The great Lila Hart, everybody. So from me... From Lila Hart and from the Lions Liberty Network and Me and Age Daydream, keep those electric eyes on us and keep <laughs> that ray gun to our heads. All right, later. All right. So I had to add a little ending part on my interview slash conversation with Lila Hart because, as tends to happen, big news broke the day after we did our recording. And I just wanted to tack on a little quick take here because I won't get to talk about it for a whole nother week. I might expand on this more and do a solo feed. As you know, Mean Age Daydream also has its own separate feed. I may do something else on there. So go ahead, subscribe to that. And maybe we'll see on Thursday if I bang something out. But in the interim, the Durham Probe has been released. Merrick Garland has said nothing about it. And the White House, when asked for comment, of course, provided no comment. Why do they provide no comment on this 305-page document? Oh, that's right, because it essentially confirms every single suspicion that the Trump campaign, and by extension, the GOP, and by extension to that, all of us, (laughs) conspiracy theorists, or people that just can see very blatantly when we're being lied to, when propaganda has been rolled out, when the Department of Justice and the deep state have been weaponized, well, that was all laid out very bare in this report. Now, the thing just came out. I've not read the 305 pages. I'm looking at other sources, but from sources like Jonathan Turley over to being libertarian over to being any, anybody else who's written or, or thought about this, and even the Libertarian Party, I give them a kudos. They had a nice tweet today about the FBI and how it should frankly be disbanded. Because within this report, it says, plain as day, this was information brought to the Clinton campaign run by... Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, run by then Department of Justice head Loretta Lynch, and of course the head of the FBI at the time, who it's not, it wasn't James Comey, I'm blanking on his name right off the top of my head, but Brennan. So this Steele dossier was brought over to them basically with full knowledge that it was total bullshit, briefed at the highest levels. So now if you talk about corruption. You're talking about a sitting president seeing a document, which by the way, the FBI did absolutely no research into. And the FBI has issued a statement corroborating this report. 
saying they didn't do shit. They didn't do any research. They didn't do any fact-checking. They immediately launched an investigation. Why? That's right, because it was against Donald Trump, because it was politically expedient to put this shadow of quote-unquote Russian collusion over his campaign. And at the same time that they're launching this investigation, you have flat-out liars like Adam Schiff, one of the biggest pieces of shit I think that's ever lived, insisting that he has seen the evidence that it is clear as day. You have Nancy Pelosi out there saying, well, we know there was collusion. We saw the documents. Really? Because this FBI has stated there was no collusion. There was no evidence. There was never anything linking Donald Trump to anything in the Steele dossier other than made up lies from Christopher Steele that were then pushed out from the Clinton campaign, pushed out by the Democratic National Convention with the full knowledge of the sitting president and vice president and Department of Justice. The FBI was tasked to go out there, dig up whatever dirt they could. And of course, there were leaks to the press nonstop from the FBI. There were leaks to the press from the Clinton campaign and Adam Schiff and Pelosi, as I already said. This is a clear weaponization of the justice system. Will anybody actually see any comeuppance for this? Of course not. Will Barack Obama get any backlash? Of course not. Will Joe Biden? Of course not, because we can see how these justice uh, are selectively applied, right? I was talking about this actually in my my Good Morning Fuckhead rant a little bit today when this news just broke, and I was just shaking my head because it's very clear why this went the way it did. And I was wondering, is it because the FBI is patently for the Democrats? I thought, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, Brian? Because George H. Walker Bush... He was a former CIA head. Clearly, he was a Republican. He was a warmongering neocon Republican, right? But at least he tried to cut some taxes. His son, obviously, very Republican, right? So you've got a history of people being in the White House that were from the deep state that are associated with these justice organizations. You think of law and justice and you think of more of the conservative bent. But yet, you have a Department of Justice under Loretta Lynch, say that name three times fast, You've got the FBI deciding that they're going to allow this entire charade to proceed. So why is that? If it's not clearly based upon partisan politics, oh, that's right. It's based upon establishment versus outside. That's the clear delineating line when it comes to the application of justice. That's why you've got people like Daniel Penny, the Marine who choked out uh, Jordan Neely, right, and who died. That's why you have him being perped walked, perp walked in front of the cameras to try to make him look like some horrible white demon. In the meantime, you have Hunter Biden basically having nothing done to investigate any of the claims that were made against him until very, very recently. This is why Hillary Clinton never went to jail, never was really investigated in any meaningful fashion or prosecuted in any meaningful fashion for her secret email servers. And in fact, in this very report, acknowledged in this report, the entire Steele dossier was created and pushed forward from the campaign of Hillary Clinton in order to draw attention away from her email server issues. Amazing how it works out. Now, what's the response to this from the FBI other than confirming everything in the fucking report? Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention this. Adam Schiff still says that there is collusion. This mother effort is out there saying, well, you know, uh, Paul Manafort met with the Russians and discussed polling data with them. If that's a collusion, what is? 
As if number one, who gives a flying shit if they told the Russians they have strategy with polling data? Who cares? Who cares? But number two, even that is nowhere in the report. And even that the FBI has zero evidence for. So he's just making stuff up off the top of his head. He's just making it up to lie to the American publication, the American public, excuse me. Just as he lied to all of these publications in the media who parroted every last word that he said that the FBI leaked, that the Clinton campaign said, parroted without any, not even a, a minute of thought as to whether they're being lied to. And this really ushered in the newest era of patently partisan deep state operators coming out on mainstream media networks. Now, before you might have a leak from the CIA or the FBI, but these people typically weren't sitting in front of you in your living room telling you to your face the lies, right? Since when do we put government spies on television to lie to us, to our faces, and somehow applaud them as though they're doing a great service for our country? Like, what the fuck are we talking about? So the FBI now comes out and says, well, you know, we're sorry, guys. I mean, oh, shucks, gee. What, what are you supposed to do? We're just full of shenanigans, we is. You know, it's like the fucking little rascals got out there. Do they have a dog with a spot on its eye that's, you know, that's like, that's the new mascot? He puts his face up to the back of a car and soot goes out into his face. Ah, shucks, we're the FBI. That should be their new fucking slogan. Aw, shucks. Ain't we kidders? Because that's what it's become. It's become the most untrustworthy organization, I mean, outside of the CIA, known for what? For setting up fake terrorist attacks? For failing to stop real ones? For <laughs> colluding with the sitting president to perpetrate crossfire hurricane, an attack which derailed a president, not only got in the way of a campaign, but derailed a presidency. Cast a shadow over everything he was trying to do. Cost the taxpayers millions of dollars. All we heard about. But aw shucks, guys. Ain't we stinkers? And the FBI has now pledged that they are going to take a hard look. They're going to make it all better. Just like, you know, all those police organizations that take hard looks and they, of course, review internally whether or not they did anything wrong and they pledge to fix it. But... Nothing ever changes. The only answer here does seem to be to completely abolish the FBI. Will something else replace it? I don't know. I'm sure it will. There's got to be some federal department or some federal bureau to investigate horseshit or not investigate horseshit, as the Department of Justice specifically told, you know, in regards to the Biden situation with Hunter and with Joe, <laughs> specifically told them to stand down from these things. And yet, no oversight. Go full bore without any thought into seeing if these, these claims have any merit, completely derailing everything for two, three years. People still believe what's in the Steele dossier, and Adam Schiff's still helping it. I mean, it's unbelievable. The only thing I can hope is that, once again, I was tweeting about this. The number of scandals is shocking to behold that are now unfolding in front of the American population. I love that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is out there talking about the CIA, how he is confident they killed his father, calling out the deep state, calling these things out. I mean, I think it will help him for sure. He's already within one point of the latest polls of Joe Biden, who, of course, has said nothing about this. Karine Jean-Pierre has said nothing about this. Of course, she's an imbecile. What would she possibly say? Crossfire hurricane? I don't seem to have any information on that. Really? There's 305 pages? You don't have that? You couldn't find it? 
Just unbelievable. But the FBI has to be abolished. Now, one more thing I want to add, and this is going to be a quick rant. At the end of the day, I'm very busy, very busy person. Uh, but I also want to talk really briefly about the World Health Organization, because this also came across the the bow today. And I guess this is actually something that had stemmed from, I think, March 10th, or sorry, May 10th. The World Health Organization, which I've already warned about the Pandemic Response Treaty that they put out there. Well, they've done one better, essentially saying that now under a concept called One Health, and Jeffrey Tucker had written about this today too, over Brownstone, One Health is a concept that the World Health Organization has now branded, which encompasses anything that could impact you, me, your mother, your ugly children, whatever it might be. It can impact anything, everything under the sun. If a gnat flies in your fucking eyeball and lays eggs and you know gnat babies come out of your ear, One Health. Because that bug is part of our grand ecosystem. If you slip and fall on a cow shit that somebody left in the middle of a park somewhere, well, one health. And if climate gets involved, oh, well, people, you know, they might be adversely affected by climate. So if you happen to have a little bit of extra swamp ass, one health because climate. Now, considering that the World Health Organization has an absolutely profound effect on how countries handle pandemics and what is declared a pandemic, this would be terrifying to anybody. Because I've seen the writing on the wall. I've talked about this before. The now King Charles had called it out when he was still a fat-fingered prince, saying, we have to treat climate as though we are in a state of war. Okay, well, we were also in a state of war versus COVID, right? We declared war on the pandemic. How did that work out? That's right. Trillions of dollars stolen, reallocated to the biggest companies, the banks, the biggest elites out there, right? People put out of work, massive unemployment. You had a third of businesses closed down. You had international trade. You had people trapped. You couldn't leave. People couldn't see their their loved ones. You had people dying, not from COVID necessarily, but of course, from all of the things that we're now seeing like cancer, like heart, heart problems that weren't taken care of properly. We saw our educational systems collapsing on themselves. Because we declared war on COVID. And now, of course, we're supposed to declare war on climate. And under this new One Health concept, the World Health Organization can declare a climate pandemic, or as I said, I don't know, a horsecock pandemic, whatever it might be, because everything is related in our environment. Anything and everything can affect our health. Thus, their authoritarian instincts will be unhindered. They declare a pandemic. Now we have a pandemic against climate, right? It's a climate pandemic, everybody. Put your ponchos on here. Take your ponchos off there. Put on your sweat-soaking-up underpants. I don't know. You're going to be extra sweaty today. It is pure and simple. Another method for control. It is pure and simple. Another way in which to dominate populations, to garner money and reallocate those funds, typically, again, from rich countries to poor countries. And on top of all of this, We're supposed to just nod along as though the last three years didn't happen. As though these fucking buffoons haven't destroyed everything they've touched, been wrong on every possible account, and yet we're supposed to trust them to take care of our health in every other aspect. No, thank you. All right, guys. That is going to wrap it up. I was uh, I was trying to play this Electric Liberty Land outro. I don't think I have it on here anymore. I got to upload it just for fun. Anyway, I'll play my regular old outro again.
All right. Bye. Subscribe. Join us on Patreon. Join us on Locals, guys. We will be going to Porkfest, by the way, teaming up with the Kibbies, Matt and Terry Kibby, and Free the People. Really excited. We're going to be doing some really fun stuff with them over at their site. Comedy shows, live podcasts, happy hours. So if you're going to Porkfest, please find us. And if you want to help us out to get to Porkfest, to put on all these events with Free the People, well, a little dosh wouldn't hurt on top of all the bonus content you get. So please support the show, support us, patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty, lionsofliberty.locals.com. And if nothing else, subscribe share the show, follow us on social media, give us a retweet. And if you're watching on YouTube or Rumble, please hit the notification button. It goes a long way. All right, guys, thanks. From me, Brian McWilliams, goodbye yet again.